In the 17th and the 18th centuries, a religious system called deism became popular, especially in England as well as the New World. It was even espoused by some of the founding fathers of our own country, namely Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Now, deism teaches that there is a God who is creator, and, and we can know Him by creation and by our own reason. We look to creation and generally understand there must be a God. By the natural laws of creation, naturalism, and our own intellect, rationalism, we can surmise there is a God, but that's about as far as it goes. In fact, they say further, while God has revealed Himself generally, He has not revealed Himself by special revelation in anything special or supernatural, uh, th that is, through the Word of God. You may remember, for example, that Thomas Jefferson once took the Bible and edited it significantly. He actually cut out pages and stories of anything supernatural, miracles, since God does not reveal Himself that way. Now, you perhaps have heard deism explained this way, that there is a God who created, but having done so, He does not interfere with His creation. Hence again, nothing supernatural, no miracles. He dictated the laws of nature and now allows nature to run its course, sort of like a clockmaker. God created the clock, wound it up, allows it to tick away and kind of sits back to watch and see what will happen, I suppose with a bowl of popcorn. Of course, the most significant problems with that religious system is, first, it does deny the Word of God. God has not revealed Himself, especially, they say, that way. But it also then denies the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, if the Creator created but does not interfere with His creation, then Jesus, well, He can't be God. He would not have entered His creation and interfered that way. He wouldn't have done miracles. That's supernatural outside the laws of nature. So don't miss that. Deism denies the deity of Jesus. Therefore, God has not stepped in to redeem humankind. We are left to do that for ourselves. Think about that. God didn't even come the first time, let alone the second. I'm going to say something startling. I would suggest this morning that many evangelicals, maybe even we, have adopted a sort of semi-deism. How so? We don't see God active in His creation. Oh, we believe in God, but we don't really believe that He does that much. Even as evangelicals, we try to explain away natural events as just that, natural events, and we often deny the hand of God in any material way. God didn't do that. Further, stunning, 
In this way, I would suggest we have perhaps unknowingly adopted the false teaching Peter addresses in 2 Peter. What could I possibly mean? You remember the teaching of the false teachers in 2 Peter goes like this. First, Jesus is not coming back. We don't typically deny that. But second, since He's not coming back, there will be no judgment. Well, we may not deny God's future judgment, but here's the question. Do we, with the deists, deny that God is in any way active, even in judgment today? See, it seems to me that we are so busy explaining the problem of evil that we don't let God be God. By the way, the third thing they were saying, since Jesus is not coming back and since there will be no judgment, you can live however you want. Let me go out on a bit of a limb. I'm not a prophet, not son of a prophet, but I would suggest that many so-called natural events, even natural disasters like hurricanes and viruses, tornadoes and floods, famines and earthquakes, we far too quickly explain away through natural factors. Much too quickly. And yet, when you read through the Old Testament, we see a number of times that God, the one true and the living God, the Creator, was active in His creation, bringing divinely ordained natural consequences to humanity's sinful and egregious rebellion. Look around the world. It makes me wonder if we were somehow able to transport our modern science and our modern rationalism and sensibilities backward, would we explain away what the Bible clearly declares to be the hand of God in judgment? We somehow don't believe He does that today. I know this is provocative. I am simply suggesting that we must not slide toward deism and say, God does nothing, or God is not at fault, or that we must not embrace the false teaching of Second Peter and say, God does not judge. Don't lay natural disasters at His feet. I am not suggesting that we label certain catastrophes as divine judgment. But perhaps we should not so readily dismiss them. Consider some Old Testament examples. When the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God sent Moses to deliver them. Through a series of ten, well, we call them plagues, God demonstrated His superiority over the Egyptian gods. Of course, they included things like disease and insects and darkness and death. I wonder how modern science would explain that 
naturally, not being the hand of God. Actually, I don't have to wonder. I have an evangelical Bible survey in my library from a prominent evangelical Bible college that explains it away. It's interesting, one of my Bible dictionaries defines plagues as disease interpreted or understood as divine judgment. Now, I am not saying that every instance of disease, cancer, heart disease, and the like, is God's judgment specifically, generally. Remember John chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And, And Jesus answered, neither one, but so that the glory of God may be manifested. Think of it. This man was blind for 40 years for the glory of God. I am suggesting this morning that a pandemic ought to at least raise our eyebrows. As God delivered the Israelites through that last plague where the firstborn of every Egyptian household died in one night, the Egyptians were then freed to go. But Pharaoh and his army followed them to the Red Sea, remember, hemming them in, no, no way out. That night, God parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites walked through on dry ground. The Egyptian army then tried to follow. The sea walls came crashing down in divine judgment, and all of them were drowned. How do we explain that? Well, modern science simply denies it happened. Do we? Roll the clock forward, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that they spied out the land and refused to take it as God had told them to do. The 40 years of wilderness wandering were divine judgment. During those years, God took care of them. He gave them manna from heaven, water from a rock, turned bitter water sweet, that is non-potable to potable water, quail from the desert. Over and over, He interfered miraculously and took care of them, but they grumbled nonetheless. And as a result, there were times that God sent judgment in the form of plagues, fires, famines, snakes, droughts, earthquakes, etc., biblically and clearly articulated to be the hand of God against the disobedient people. Let me read one such account. It's right after the Red Sea. Left the Red Sea, traveled to Mount Sinai, where God gave them the law. But while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, you'll remember that the people, led by Aaron, fashioned a golden calf to be their God. When Moses came back with those tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments, in anger, he smashed them, broke them. God Himself was angry too because of their idolatry. Read in Exodus chapter 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin. 
and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you nevertheless. In the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Great as it is. Idolatry. And the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. We don't know what he did to smite them. Likely a plague. Undoubtedly many died in God's judgment. In the book of Numbers, when the people complained about the manna having no meat, God gave them quail. Then we read that he struck them. While the meat was still in their mouths, he struck them with a very severe plague. That's a quote. At Korah's rebellion, the earth quaked and split, swallowing them all up. The people murmured the next day, God threatened to kill the entire nation. He did send a plague which killed 14,700 of them in one day. That's an epidemic. I could go on and on. They claimed about their miserable food, and so God sent venomous snakes among them so that, quote, many of the people of Israel died. Later, when David decided to take, a, to, to, to take a census of the people, trusting in that rather than in God, God sent another plague and killed 70,000 of them. Read through the book of Revelation. Regardless of your view of the book, it is filled with God's judgment through natural disasters and plagues. The point is, God is a righteous, holy judge, and He will judge people. In the future, most assuredly, but not now. Is it possible to suggest that natural disasters and diseases are the hand of God in judgment against an egregiously rebellious people? Or are we just so smart that we can scientifically explain everything away, becoming semi-deistic, denying that God has any hand in this world that He created and all that is going on? By the way, I could add the number of times in the Old Testament that God used other people, pagan people like the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to exact His judgment on a disobedient and obstinate people. Don't count God out using pagan people to chastise His people. What's my point? Very simply this. While we should perhaps not assign God's hand of judgment to every natural disaster or plague or virus, perhaps we should not be too quick to dismiss them either. Maybe. We deserve it. Maybe he's trying to get our attention. You see, in Second Peter, the false teachers were saying, Jesus is not coming back and therefore there will be no judgment. Live however you want. And it is precisely because people live however they want that judgment comes in the past, in the present, and in the future.
most definitively. Last time we were in Second Peter, a couple of weeks ago, we started chapter 2, which is the condemnation of these false teachers. There is no judgment. Do, do we do the same thing? I outlined the chapter like this, the impact of the false teachers, then the sure and certain condemnation of these false teachers, and then the character of the false teachers. That'll be next week. We looked at the first three verses where we saw, just as there were false prophets among the people of Israel in the Old Testament, so also there will be false teachers in the church in the new. Peter's readers saw these false teachers introduce destructive heresies, deny the master who bought them. They were sexually and sensually sinful, and they were exceedingly greedy. It's quite the list. Now Peter says, just as people were judged for their sinful rebellion in the old, so also these false teachers will be judged. We see that in verses 4 to 10. Read it with me, starting in verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For, here's how we know that's true. For if God... Verses 4 to 10 are one sentence in the Greek. Word piled upon word. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. For if God, is the implication, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Are we listening? And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual, sexual, sinful conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We're not supposed to get, just get used to it. Then the Lord knows how to rescue. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Again, one sentence in the Greek which forms a very long, well-crafted argument, an if-then argument. It goes like this. If this, then this. If this is true, then mark it down. This is also true. That forms our outline. If God judged and, if God judged and rescued in the past, He did that simultaneously, then God will judge. Mark it down. He will judge and rescue. I'm suggesting in the present, but most definitively in the future. There are three times that God judged, coupled with two times that He rescued in verses 4 to 8. He judged the angels, He judged the world at the time of Noah, and He judged 
Sodom and Gomorrah. At the same time, God rescued Noah and his family, and he rescued Lot. Peter's conclusion then in verses 9 and 10 is this. If he has done that, if he has judged and rescued in the past, he will do so in the present, culminating in the great day of judgment in the future. This is, again, a a well-articulated argument. God has judged the wicked while also rescuing, indeed even vindicating, even vindicating the righteous. How many were on the boat? There were eight. How many were rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah? There were three. As people say, you still believe this fairy tale? You will be vindicated. When God judges the wicked while rescuing and vindicating the righteous. Let's look at the three times that he judged, along with a couple of rescues, starting with sinning angels in verse 4. For if God, really that's the only time the word if uh, appears, but it's repeated by the translators for our understanding, rightly so. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Peter's point being, God, listen, God didn't even spare angelic beings when they sinned. Why would we expect that he would spare people? cast them into hell, actually Tartarus, the place of confinement. It's the the netherworld, the underworld, where the titans were said to be, the false gods were said to, or fallen gods were said to be confined, awaiting future judgment. This was a commonly held belief, but Peter takes that and says, listen, there are fallen angels awaiting final judgment, committed to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, immediately you think, well, when did God do this. This is a very challenging verse. These three judgments do seem to be somewhat in chronological order. This judgment of the angels, the judgment of the world, and the judgment of Sodom. When did God judge the angels? There are three distinct possibilities. I was pretty sure I knew which one was right, and then I did all of the reading this week. I have no idea. You decide. First, is when the angels rebelled against God in heaven, led by Satan, and God threw them out. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12, when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him, which then became demons. They were cast out of heaven down to earth where they lived, where they now live. They're no longer in the glories of heaven. In that sense, this is metaphorical. They live uh, on the earth with limited powers. They are, in a sense, in pits of darkness awaiting future judgment when they will be forever cast into the lake of fire. We know this. The Scripture speaks of the lake of fire being created for Satan and his angels. They know what their ultimate end is. Judgment. Second possibility is that Peter is referring to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. This is commonly held right at the beginning of the flood account when the sons of God had, in, uh, had relations with the daughters of men and produced a giant race of people. The sons of God, it is said, are these fallen angels. This led then to this worldwide destruction of the world in Genesis 6 to 9. I know that some of you ladies just went through a study in the book of Jude this summer where the teacher suggested that Genesis 6, 1 to 4 is what Jude and Peter were talking about. Fallen angels might be right. I don't know. You say, where does that idea come from? It's not real clear in Genesis chapter 6. You're right. Leads to the third possibility. The idea comes from an intertestamental book after Malachi before Matthew uh, it is clearly articulated, clearly uh, uh, put forth in First Enoch. Enoch tells 
of these fallen angels, these demons, having relations with human women for which they were judged. This then, by the time the New Testament was written, was a widely held belief. Everybody knew the story. It was like those, those uh, stories, bedtimes, what are they called? You know the thing um, that, 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 that Peter talked, that, that Michael talked about in the, uh, in the kids' minute. Nursery rhymes, that's the word I was looking for. Those nursery rhymes. Uh, th- those who support this say it doesn't really matter whether or not this really happened. It was widely held, and Peter just simply uses it as an il- illustration, taking it from First Enoch. Let me quickly summarize what I think and hold very, very loosely. Again, I was convinced until I read hundreds of pages. I, I, I don't think you can take the third option that Peter uses a non-biblical legend, dare I call it a myth, to support his teaching on a literal judgment. In other words, while he, he may be referring to what Enoch talks about, he's not talking about something that didn't happen. You've got to dismiss that. You wouldn't take a myth to prove something true. That's ir- irresponsible. Leads us the first two options. Either that Peter was writing of when Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven, or that Genesis 6 actually speaks of angels falling and cohabitating with women. Not going to spend a lot of time on this, given our mixed audience and children present. If it is that, fallen angels, then I agree with those who have suggested these were demon-possessed people. Okay? Uh, Even though taught in intertestamental books that they were fallen angels, there's a problem with this view, not the least of which Jesus spoke of angels being all sexual. So both, I think, are possible. I lean toward the first option. If you pick the second option, fine. You teach it. The, the angels, here's the point. I don't want us to miss. The angels in the past were judged somehow and thrown into pits of darkness awaiting future judgment, which they deserve, meaning if God judged angels Don't think for a moment he will not judge people. Which brings us to the second judgment, verse 5. If God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. We read about this in Genesis 6 to 9. It's the flood narrative. Why did the flood come? Genesis 6 tells us. It wasn't just a natural disaster, you see. Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound familiar? And so verse 7 says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I've made this sorry lot. That's Scott's translation. Do not miss that God judged the world because of their wickedness. So much for deism and the false teaching of Second Peter, of the false teachers of Second Peter. You know the story of Noah and the ark. For over a hundred years, Noah built a big boat according to God's instruction to preserve his family and animals through God's, uh, through God's judgment of the flood. Of course, um, we'll see in chapter 3 that people then and today, by the way, routine, today routinely and conveniently forget that story Noah and the flood, come on. They deny it. Never happened, they say. I am not a scientist. I'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 3, but there is plenty of evidence for a worldwide flood. In fact, did you know that almost 250 cultures around the world have their own independent cataclysmic flood stories? 
How is that so? I would suggest it's because it happened. And when Noah and his family came off the ark and they told their children, who told their children, told you, like a telephone game, it got perverted. But now 250 different flood stories are told because they happened or the one happened. point is God judged by destruction entire, an entire planet because of their wickedness. Bringing us to the third story, verse 6, another familiar one, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, because of our mixed audience and the children present, I'm not going to retell the story in great detail. The Lord appeared to Abraham to tell him that he and Sarah would have a child, Isaac, by this time next year. Then he told Abraham, listen, I'm on my way to, to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great wickedness. You remember Abraham's nephew Lot lived in Sodom, so Abraham talked the Lord into not destroying the cities of the plain, five of them, if ten righteous people could be found there. So in Genesis 19, two angels show up to Sodom to destroy it. Lot takes them into his house. The men of the city surrounded Lot's house, seeking to have relations with Lot's house guests. The angels then smote the men with blindness. Lot, his wife, and two daughters were then escorted out of the city and sought Sodom and Gomorrah, the five cities of the plain, were summarily destroyed because of their wickedness. Turned to ash, Peter says, serving as an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Don't miss that. Sodom and Gomorrah, spoken of throughout the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament, Jesus even talks about it, are to be examples to us of what happens if we live in sexual sin. Judgment is coming, which brings us very quickly to an important point. While God will judge the wicked, He will at the same time rescue the righteous. He gives us two examples. First, Noah and his family, eight in all, Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, only out eight out of the entire planet were spared. The point seems to be there was a small number. Not unlike today. And becoming more so. Because broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. And narrow is the the road that leads to life everlasting, and few, few there be that find it. Very interestingly, we read here, not in the Genesis account, but in Peter's account that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What does this mean? Most agree it probably means that while Noah was building the ark, he was preaching to those around him. What was he preaching? Very simply, judgment is coming. Repent and turn to the Lord. That is an incredibly important application for us today. That is part of our gospel proclamation. When we are saved, we are saved from something, you see. All too often, our gospel proclamation is just, God loves you and He has some really good things for you, which is true, but God loves you and He wants to spare you from the destruction that is rightly coming. Judgment is coming. I don't want to be a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I don't think I am. But as I preach verse by verse through the Scripture, we see in 2 Peter chapter 2, judgment is coming. I want you to listen to me. 
If you don't know Jesus, you are in deep trouble. Judgment is coming. But I have some very good news for you. Just like God provided a way of escape during Noah's day, He's provided a way of escape for us through the work of His Son on the cross and His resurrection. Repent. I'm begging with you. I'm pleading with you. Repent and believe the gospel. You can be saved from the judgment that is most assuredly coming. Oh, you think that's just Old Testament? Well, let me read to you a passage. I don't have it on the screen. A passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. He's going to punish the wicked, the guilty, and He's going to provide relief for you to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. This is my plea for you today. I am saying to you, judgment is coming. Repent and believe the gospel. God provided a way of escape for Lot and his family. Yes, his wife looked back, seemingly longing for what she was leaving, turned into a pillar of salt. But the point is God rescued righteous Lot. It's a bit of a challenge when you read those particular words because when you read about Lot, in Genesis 13 to 19, he doesn't appear particularly righteous. And yet, again, those intertestamental books talk about his righteousness, and a close reading of Genesis points out that he was not in line with the inhabitants of those wicked cities. He alone provided refuge for the angels and sought to protect them. And here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not like those intertestamental books, in the Scripture, we read in verse 7 and 8 that God rescued righteous Lot three times. He called him righteous, who was oppressed, that is grieved to the heart over the sensual conduct. The word actually speaks of any, listen, any illicit activity outside of marriage. Sinful, sensual conduct of unprincipled, lawless men. Verse 8 says that when he observed what he observed tormented his righteous soul, it tormented him day after day. It's a question. Does that happen with you? When you see the lawless, sinfully sexual behavior of the culture around us, does it grieve your righteous soul? Not in a condemning way, but in a grieving way. It torments us. It should. Because, not because we're, we were better but having been saved from our egregious and sinful rebellion, it torments us to see people continuing to live and in and pursue such sinful lives, knowing that judgment is coming. By the way, in their heart of hearts, in their heart of hearts, it torments them as well. You have to kill your conscience to live in such a sinful way, but that too provides a way for the gospel God has promised to you if you are living in torment because of your life. God has promised a way of escape. You can know peace. You can know inner peace and peace with God through Christ. I offer this to you today.
Finally, our second point, I know, it's our conclusion. I only have a few paragraphs left. Verses 10 and 9, or 9 and 10. You know the thing. If God knew how to judge the wicked before and all the while rescue the righteous, He can do the same with us. To be clear, we are not righteous because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And those who have trusted Christ, God will rescue from temptation. The word can refer to temptation, to sin, or trials in this context, given the judgment for those who are wicked, who give in to temptation, who try to encourage those around them to give in. Peter's likely talking about temptation to sin. God will deliver you from sin's temptation. I know that you're being tempted by the culture around you, even by false teachers in the church. Don't give in. He will deliver you. Further, God will keep the unrighteous under punishment. That's present tense, under punishment right now, deserving present and future punishment on the day of judgment. Verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Very simply, he's referring back to these false teachers at the beginning of the, uh, of the chapter. There we saw that they follow their own sensual uh, and sexual desires, all the while despising the master's authority. These are people who pursue wanton sexual sin, thinking, I can get away with it, there will be no judgment, and therefore they despise Christ's authority. It's not coming back. It doesn't matter. They scoff, they mock, they deny, all, all so that they can follow their sinful desires. So, what do we do with a message like this? I would suggest two very quick things. First, as followers of Jesus, we see once again that pursuing holiness is what we do. We don't follow false teachers who say, sin it up. Pursue your sexual sinful desires. It doesn't really matter. Did God really say? The Bible is so outdated. We need to update it. All the while denying the master. We should pursue godliness. It's what followers do. And secondly, lastly, I would suggest very gently, we should not be too quick to dismiss God's hand of judgment on an egregiously disobedient people. As we look around and see what is going on in our world, we remember Romans 1, suppressing the truth about God. God then hands them over to sin, their sinful desires and its consequences. I am not so sure that all we see happening in the world and in our country especially is not the result of God's holy, righteous anger. And judgment. Perhaps we should more readily warn people this is all, you liking this? This is all just a picture, a, a simple glimpse of the torment to come. Judgment is coming. Repent and believe the gospel.